Hello, Her Voice listeners. With many of us headed back into the office after summer holidays and the new school year on the horizon, we are excited to share with you this special episode where we got to know one of ESCP's professors of management, Arguro Avgustaki. We hope you enjoy listening to Arguro discuss her career, as well as her research on overwork, which is as timely as ever. Happy listening! Besides the pandemic, it seems like burnout has been the buzzword of the last two years. However, according to the research of ESCP Professor of Management, Dr. Agiro Avgustaki, employees have been struggling with overwork well before. Agiro joins us in the fifth episode of Her Voice to dive deeper into why we work the way we do and to discuss whether or not the pandemic has sparked the wake-up call we needed across many sectors, including academia. Hello, everyone. Her Voice is a podcast from The Choice, the media powered by ESCP Business School and dedicated to decision makers. My name is Lara. And I'm Emily. And we're from The Choice's editorial team. Her Voice is guided by one really important mission, to give the mic to women experts whose visions have transcended the competitive world of business, shaking things up for the better. Today on Her Voice, we're talking about why we overwork and the consequences on our well-being with Dr. Argiro Avustaki, a professor of management at ESCP. She holds a PhD degree in business administration and quantitative methods and has been working extensively on the topics of high-performance work practices, flexible work, and what motivates employee efforts. Beyond the academic journals, her work has been covered in major media outlets such as The Guardian, Women's Health, Entrepreneur, and CNBC. She's also one of the founders of the London Cigna Group, which represents a network of female scholars. Hello, uh, thank you for inviting me. I'm really happy to talk to you about uh, my work and my research on work effort. Um, to start, we like to ask our guests on the podcast to tell us about the woman behind the voice. Have you always known you wanted to be a professor of management? No, not at all. I think uh, it became clear to me when I was doing my master's degree uh, in business economics. I think I, I was very inspired by my classmates. Uh, they were very, very good students. Most of them wanted to do a PhD. Uh, they were coming, some of them were coming from, you know, some, uh, let's say, uh, difficult um, or, or very from very far away, let's put it that way. And then they wanted to change completely their life. So I think I was inspired by them. Uh, I think I wanted it, but, you know, doing a PhD is really a lot of work and it leads a lot of dedication. And then seeing, you know, these students, my, uh, you know, my classmates uh, being so motivated about this, I think I was inspired. And then, of course, my professors that were like, you know, very good. And then I realized that, you know, this is a very nice job with a purpose. So that was the moment I think that I thought, okay, probably this is what I want to do in my life. But I'm sure when you were imagining your life as a professor, you never thought you'd be teaching during a global pandemic. So I wanted to know, how have you dealt with everything that has happened these last two years? What was the biggest challenge for you as a professor? 
Apart from the uncertainty that we all faced, one of the biggest challenges for me was working and teaching from home. Switching the, uh, you know, completely online and for some months, actually, it was very challenging because uh, I need to make sure that students are actually there. Uh, they are focused. They don't have a lot of distractions and that they're actually learning. Yeah, I'm sure it was for everyone who was able to work remotely. It was a big yeah. change being at home every day and not seeing your colleagues. And I'm sure it's it was even harder for you not to see your, your students. But academia wasn't the only industry to have to massively and rapidly adapt their ways of working after the first lockdown. In the U.S., for example, among employed adults whose job has the potential to be done from home, because, well, we know not all jobs can be remote, 22% were working remotely before the pandemic. And that number jumped to 71% by the end of 2020. This percentage is likely to stay above pre-pandemic numbers. As of July 2021, two-thirds of workers around the world said they'd like flexible work hours even after the pandemic has ended. This desire for flexible work isn't entirely new, though. Arguro, you've actually been studying flexible work well before the pandemic, as well as researching work effort and the impact of long working hours on employee well-being, something I think many of those listening probably know too well. So in your case, how did the massive shift to remote work and the consequences that came with hold up to what you had previously found in your research? So in general, uh, what we know about telework is uh, that is an employee-centered practice, so it's given to the employees because it's for their own benefit. And with my co-author, Almudena Canibano, who is also an associate professor at the Madrid campus, uh, we studied telework under the financial crisis in Spain. And what we found was that under crisis, under a turbulent environment, people change a little bit their perceptions about telework and they perceive it as a threat. So they don't see it necessarily as an employee-centered practice that is for their benefit. So if we extrapolate a little bit the results from our findings with Almudena, so what we would say is that perhaps employees perceive or will perceive in the future telework as a threat, right? Like they perceived it during the financial crisis. Mm. So when you say employees perceive teleworking as a threat, you mean a threat to their work? So like they're they're scared to be losing their jobs because they're teleworking? Yes, exactly. So there is this idea that uh, you are out of sight, you are out of mind. If you want to have better career opportunities, if you want to, uh, if you want to 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 get a promotion, perhaps the supervisor, the manager, the owner of the company has to see you. Now working from home, Although you might be doing a great job and the quality of your work might be high, so it's nothing to do necessarily with productivity or efficiency or how good you are, but you might be forgotten. That's really interesting. And that reminds me that a colleague of yours, Emmanuel Leon, who's a professor of human resources here in Paris, she uh, published some research a few months ago sharing that um, because of this issue of presenteeism, um, mm-hmm. people working from home would work longer to show that they were working, even though they would be working as much in the office. Um, And that's one of the things you talk about a lot in your research that's more focused on overwork and how, Mm -hmm. of course, there's long hours. That's an aspect of that, but also work intensity. I was wondering if you could talk to us a little more about why we do that. Of course, these issues of the pandemic, but also more generally, why do we overwork? There are different reasons and uh, they could be 
extrinsic, uh, intrinsic, um, or sometimes both. So an extrinsic motivator is, for example, um, when you do something, let's say you put uh, work effort, either you work overtime or with higher work intensity, because you are expecting deferred payment. So you are expecting that in the future you are going to receive a higher salary or better career opportunities. This is an extrinsic motivator, right? Now, an intrinsic motivator is, for example, when you do it because you feel it's fun because um, it's inherently interesting. So it comes from you. So it's not an external pressure. It's not a reward. It's something that you really want to do because it's fun, is interesting, or because you are learning. Um, for example, I want to stay two, three hours more at work today because I'm learning. I'm learning this new task and I like it. And I think it's interesting how in certain cultures um, in France, but also in the United States, I think it's when you stay longer in the office, it's perceived as something positive. You're a hard worker. But in other culture, like in Denmark, it's I, I worked for the Danish company and I remember it's perceived as negative as staying uh, late in the office because it shows that maybe you're not organized and you're not able to manage your to do all your tasks during your workday. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is possible that it's perceived as something good. But also it could be that you're wasting time or that you're not able to complete your task on time because you're not that good. Again, uh, it is cultural. Uh, you know, it depends a lot from what is the norm. However, I think, you know, uh, even in, in cultures that uh, working overtime or with high intensity might be perceived as something good, that doesn't mean that it is good. It's possible that the results... Uh, will show a different picture. For example, that employees, yes, they stay late or they work um, with high speed or under tight deadlines, but then they are exhausted, right? They are um, stressed. They might experience burnout It's possible, or more extreme, um, let's say, outcomes. So in both cultures, regardless of whether it is perceived good or bad, it's possible that the outcomes, especially for the employees, might be bad. So with the pandemic, I mean, you know, we talked a little bit uh, earlier in the introduction of the podcast about burnout and that being something that beyond talking about the health crisis and the economic crisis, we're hearing a, a lot about burnout and employees leaving companies and searching for meaning. Uh, for example, in the United States, 4.2 million Americans quit their jobs in October. And many of those coming from the hospitality industry, which is commonly associated with long hours and low pay. So mm -hmm. clearly the extrinsic motivators are not there and it's detrimental to their well-being. Do you think this is changing? Are the internal and external motivators not working anymore? So we have collected data from a high-intensity context uh, in Greece before COVID, but also during COVID. And we found, for example, that the motives that drive employees to work intensively, uh, which again is one dimension of work effort, and how these motives predict well-being haven't changed. We find very similar results, meaning we find that uh, pre-COVID, uh, extrinsic motivators are associated with negative well-being, while intrinsic motivators are associated with less negative well-being or positive well-being. So maybe the, the solution in the future is that we, we all work less. What do you think about the, the four-day week? Do you think it could be a, a solution? Uh, I'm not sure. 
<laughs> or let, let's put it that way. A four-day work week will probably not solve the problem for everyone. And, um, and the reason is because we do have evidence. We have used data from the European Working Condition Survey. And what we found is that even with discretion, so having some control over your work, work intensity generally is a stronger predictor of unfavorable outcomes such as lower well-being or career-related outcomes. What does this mean? That overtime is bad. So if you work, you know, beyond your normal schedule is bad. But what is worse is if you work with work intensity. So if we move to a four-day work week, and we have to do the work that we are supposed to do in five days or in six days, it possibly means that our work intensity is going to increase. So the question is, are we going to compensate for you know, the reduced schedule, the reduced days with more work intensity? And if the answer is yes, then perhaps... A four-day work week might not be good for everyone because it's possible that, you know, we are not going to work so many days, but our work intensity perhaps is going to increase. And we know, we know that uh, that it's not good for employee well-being. And also we have some evidence that is not good either for career opportunities. Well, it sounds like there's not yet, even though four-day work week sounds really sexy, that it's not a, a fix-all solution yet. And we can't forget work intensity, which has a huge impact on employees. When we are talking about ways, though, that businesses can have a positive impact on their employee well-being when it comes to work effort, I was wondering if you could share some some tips or insights on what managers, what business leaders can realistically do to oversee the work effort of their employees and improve well-being in the workplace. I think what is very important is better planning. So, for example, we know that one of the elements that really aggravate employee well-being and also effort is, is uncertainty. And it has to do with task uncertainty. So they, if you have, you know, unforeseen tasks that you have to do during the day or schedule uncertainty, that your schedule changes. So better planning will be very, very helpful so that the employees know more or less the tasks that they need to perform and the schedule that they need to follow. Of course, we can always have interruptions, you know, sometimes it happens. We can all manage this, but this, it shouldn't be the norm. That's one. The second is lead by example. You know, nothing is going to change. Nothing. I mean, very few things are going to change if the managers, the employers or the leaders are not you know, they're not part of the change. So, you know, if you're, um, let's say if you're working for a company and the employer or the, the CEO, I mean, they're staying until late, you might be reluctant to go home earlier, right? So they need to lead by example. Uh, they need to keep, for example, also some time off work. If they send um, um, emails during the weekends, you might also be more compelled to do it, right? And then the last thing is that I think they need to think of work effort not only in terms of overtime, I think it's very important that we don't let employees to work, you know, long hours and excessive hours, but we need to shift a little bit the focus on work intensity because there is over, you know, you know, there is this discussion about how to manage overtime. We shouldn't work long hours. Then when you see the results, uh, when you see the, the, the data, what they show is that, yes, overtime is bad, but work intensity is way worse. Mm -hmm. 
In previous episodes of our podcast, we've spoken to women experts who work in male-dominated industry, including crypto finance and artificial intelligence. Together, we realized that whether it is within the data that feeds into our algorithms or in our financial system, gender bias is still alive and well. Unfortunately, these inequalities between men and women are not specific to one industry, but systematic in our societies. Since 1901, out of 943 individuals who were awarded the Nobel Prize, only 58 winners were women. That's less than 6%. Argiro, this made me think of an article that you wrote in The Choice, ESCP's business school's new media, where you mentioned prior research showing that women in academia tend to receive fewer grants and awards and are cited less. You mentioned the Matilda Effect, a term introduced by Cornell professor Margaret Rossiter, for a systematic under-recognition of female scientists, with their work often attributed to male colleagues. You also point out that women hold more part-time jobs and precarious contracts. Why do you think that gender inequality persists in academia? Yeah, I think it is because academia, um, uh, it's, it's like a male-type domain. Still, I mean, it's, it's a perception, right? But, you know, sometimes perceptions take a lot of time to change. Uh, biases take a lot of t- uh, time to change. Of course, there is a lot of progress and I'm sure the percentages are going to change. And in terms of, you know, how many publications women versus men have uh, about the awards, about even Nobel Prize winners, right? Uh, but still, uh, it is it is perceived as a male type. Domain. Now, although these biases exist, there is, you know, there is view in in the literature that, for example, it's not just the bias, but also it is that uh, women tend to choose different career paths, for example, or they might focus more on their family. However, there is also evidence that suggests that that there are gaps even within occupation. I mean, you see it, for example, um, a woman that is a doctor might be uh, called with her, uh, with her name or surname, uh, and a man that is a doctor might be called Dr. X, for example. And, and that's the problem, that many times the biases are unconscious. You don't realize, and it can... Um, It can happen at, at, at any point. Uh, in, in academia, for example, and by talking to a lot of colleagues, there is this idea that e- performance evaluations are or tend to be uh, worse for uh, female academics than for male academics. And again, it might not, not have to do anything with the skill or um, it could just be uh, bias, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there is increased awareness of... Um the of these biases of these stereotypes and of the lack of gender equality in academia and other sectors but change is slow and inequalities still remain so you and and a group of women have decided to take action and you co-founded Cigna a network of female academics so can you tell us more about Cigna Yes. So Cigna was established in um, June 2014. 
And it was a combined initiative of Anwil, uh, Harzing, Lin, uh, Zhang, and Shasha uh, Zhao and myself. Um, we had the first meeting at the ACP. And uh, until now, we had, I think, 44 meetings organized. Now, the objective of the group is to promote interaction among uh, female academics and provide a forum for learning and networking. I mean, I have to be very honest that many of the biases, and because my research is not on gender or uh, equality mm-hmm. or biases I, I like the topic and especially because of Signa sometimes I'm motivated to write about this but I actually learned a lot about this topic by this group and uh, you know these kind of initiatives help because women can ask you know we, we can ask you know when we have an issue when we want to apply for a promotion when we want to change jobs so for example in the group um, we can help a colleague if they go for promotion. They can ask for references. We can share articles. We can share ideas. Uh, we can talk about issues and how to overcome them. And again, one of them is is, is inequality, um, uh, among other among other uh, topics. Going back to the COVID topic, um, the pandemic has laid bare gender inequalities across the world, um, with women making up the, the bulk of essential workers, including the majority of healthcare workers. Yet worldwide and across income groups, the pandemic has hit women's labor market opportunities the hardest. So um, from your research and your own experience, have women in academia been spared Is, it, is the COVID pandemic a new setback for women in academia as well? So what we know is that in general, and that's, that's before the pandemic, uh, men publish more than women. They are awarded more grants than women. They are applying for more patents than women. Now, if you see what happened during the pandemic, and I say during because I think we're still in it, right? Uh, so the pandemic has only worsened this trend. So, for example, research on manus- manuscript sub- uh, submissions during COVID-19 indicated that women submitted fewer manuscripts than men uh, during the first wave of the pandemic in the early 2020. And especially in some in particular areas like the health and the medicine research. So... At least in that aspect, you see that uh, as soon as the pandemic hit, um, women, and again, in particular areas, they submitted less manuscripts uh, than men. So you can clearly see that that somehow the pandemic, at least in that aspect, affected a little bit women. And why do you think that is that women submitted less papers? I mean, one explanation is that, you know, we have to move our work uh, at home. Now, you know, the the boundaries between family and work become very blurred. So, you know, I have to cook, perhaps uh, I have to take care of the dog. I have to to work at the same time. uh, Schools were closed, right, for, for some time. So it is possible that because of family responsibilities, Um, they didn't have a lot of time to to submit as many manuscripts as they would have liked. In many ways, the pandemic has been has been a challenge, but hopefully it's also an opportunity because I think it's also raised a lot of conversations, um, at least just going back to the well-being aspect. I don't know if you have that perspective of someone who's been researching it for years, but I have the impression that in the last couple of years, I've heard more about mental health, well-being at work than I ever have previously. Well, certainly there is a big discussion and I think it will be 
uh, it will be increasing. Uh, now, my hope is that that uh, even without the pandemic, this would be a topic that that people will start paying more attention because you know, in the end, you know, if, if, the the employee well being is 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 so multi. Um, multidimensional in the sense it's not about only how we work and if the companies will become successful but also you know if if employee well-being is 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 affected then your family life perhaps is going to be affected by this because i cannot imagine that you are unhappy at work but then very happy at at home uh, if i go at the macro level you know the health system is going to be aggravated because more and more people will have well-being or health issues right because it's not only about you know emotional well-being mental well-being it's also about physical well-being right so i think it would be a topic that it would receive more and more attention regardless of the covid it's possible that because of the covid we you know we pushed a little bit or accelerated some uh, some parts of it So I think that actually helps us transition perfectly to our last question and an opportunity to share a bit of advice with fellow academics um, and just any other listeners who are also looking to find their voice. In your case, um, in your career, you've already been a visiting researcher at several prominent universities, featured in numerous academic journals and a regular presence in top media. Looking back at these experiences and where you are today, what advice would you give to others who are still trying to find their voice? Well, uh, perhaps this was the hardest question for me because you know it's it's not easy to give an advice uh, that is actually useful. I was thinking to share one that we discuss a lot with the Signa group, and um, it is you know to share. Just talk about what you're doing. Many times women are a little bit you know um, reluctant, humble, shy. Um, they don't have the time. I don't know what is the mechanism behind, but they don't talk about their achievements, their work, their good work, right? Uh, perhaps women rely on their work to speak for itself and feel that they will be rewarded accordingly at some point in time, but that's not always the case, right? I think it's a very good idea to just talk about what you're doing, put it out there. I mean, especially with uh, um, you know, with young scientists or work with people that are doing research, we often discuss that you know we publish our work, but we never mention it. So. Women might be, let's say, let's say, less likely to post it on LinkedIn or on Facebook or in social media because they think, okay, this is like I'm showing off right now. That's one. Then I think, you know, finding people in general, men or women, finding their voice, I think it has to do a lot with the institution. You know, no matter how much you want to 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 be heard, um, it's the institution that that you know in the end might actually not allow you to talk or might actually help you to talk. And I think at the institutional level, I think we all have to question a little bit our judgment. The employers have to question a little bit their judgment during, for example, the review process, the performance evaluation process, what type of criteria they are using. That is such an important point because we know that oftentimes it's put on the women themselves to, to change or to behave a certain way but it's also on the institutions to provide those opportunities and raise people up. Thank you all for listening to Her Voice, a podcast powered by ESCP Business School's media, The Choice. If you have enjoyed this episode, 
and learning more about the future of work and inclusive academia with Dr. Aguiro Avgustaki, don't hesitate to give us five stars or subscribe to Her Voice on your favorite podcast app. This was the last episode of Her Voice Season 1. We're very happy to have shared with you the journey and knowledge of six women experts and industry leaders. If you've just stumbled upon us, feel free to check out our previous episodes and join us in diving deeper on topics as diverse as sustainable farming, cryptocurrencies, AI, and more. We cannot wait to be back behind the mic to speak to more inspiring women. Stay tuned!